Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the first in a series of interviews we plan to do with a variety of military veterans at Seaboard Foods in an effort to showcase the diversity of careers possible within the animal protein space. Our first guest is Will Clark, international sales representative for Seaboard Foods, a top U.S. pork producer, processor, and leading export to more than 30 countries. Will is one of Seaboard's more than 5,000 employees across five U.S. states and specializes in exporting their product to the Japanese market. In addition to maintaining Seaboard's relationship with their Japanese client, Will is responsible for price tracking, inventory management, and new product development. Will's career in the Marines began formally as a military police officer, but due to the needs of the Corps at that time, around 2005, he was immediately reassigned to a police transition team, or PIT team, and deployed both to Iraq, then to Afghanistan. We talk about some of his major lessons learned from these experiences and how he's transitioned them into the private sector. First to Colorado State to study agribusiness, then to Seaboard Foods. We also dive into Will's thoughts on using technology and automation to address the current labor shortages. Enjoy. It's, it's funny to say, so I, I had no, I mean, I roughly knew the branches, just roughly knew them, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't know what the, ostensibly what the differences were. So, you know, I knew the Navy's on the water, Air Force in the air and Army <laughs> and Marine Corps did something. So yeah. I, I, I remember what the recruiting office I went to had all branches in the same office. And I think I remember, I think I was either looking at the Army or the, I might've been looking for the Army recruiters, but they weren't there. And, you know, so they, you had a Marine Sergeant sitting there and just like all recruiters, just throw, they'll snag and start talking you up. So this guy started chatting me up and, and that was, that was it. I mean, just so by just the luck that the army recruiter was at lunch, I, I joined the Marine Corps. So, I, I mean, obviously you've, t- you've talked with recruiters and they're going to sell you on it being the best of the best. And then when I started looking into it, it, it obviously that's, that's, you know, I, I think I convinced myself that I, if I was going to do it, I was going to try to do, you know, the, the hardest route, try to make it the hardest on myself. You know, I didn't, I felt like if that was the, the branch I was going to go into, then, um, then, you know, I wanted it to be the, the one that can say that, Hey, it was the toughest to do. Right. right. Um, so, uh, and the other, the other side to it too, is obviously because it, and all the other branches obviously do this too, but because the Marine Corps kind of touched all aspects of the battlefield, it seemed like there was more job opportunities, you know, whether I wanted to, to you know, go on float or if I wanted something to do with the air wing or on the land portion of it. So it seemed like there was a lot of different avenues that I could take versus um, any of the other branches. At least that's, that's how it was sold to me. And that's what I, I think that's what I absorbed. Can you give us a story from either of those deployments that, uh, you know, that you learned something or experienced something that still sticks with you today or that you, that you keep as you, uh, as you transition forward? Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think a lot of it was, you know, I, I think the 
maybe it's not a, like just an instance, but I think the one of the biggest takeaways, especially from Afghanistan, because we we live with these guys. You know, in Iraq, we had we just came, visited them, and then left. Iraq, we had some separation. We didn't live with them. We didn't live with Iraqi police. We didn't, you know, we didn't eat with them. Didn't do that. Afghanistan, we were that was it. I mean, we we had we were living with them. We were sleeping in the same place with them. So it was a whole different exercise and, and trust building. I mean, initially, you know, we didn't we didn't trust them. So we had one guy always away from training with a, with his gun ready because there was tons of that. I think they call them green on blue, right. where you had a bunch of whether you know, you had Af uh, Afghanis turn or Afghans turning on on their U.S. Uh, you know instructors, teachers, whatever it is. So th there was a degree of that, and then once you started figuring out like, hey, you know, there's very simple things you can do to start building trust with with people, and it's the same thing with any interpersonal relationship you have. It's just it's trust building. So it's like, hey. We got to get these guys fed. We got to build them latrines. We got to build them. Um, we got to build them showers. Got to build them, you know, living space. Give them some cots. Get them, you know. So we were building things and putting things together and, and realizing, like, hey, you know, if you just start giving people basic necessities and things, like the trust is inherent. It starts happening. And you know, I think seeing that that progression over months, it's like we went from essentially pretty much pointing guns at each other, not trusting to, yeah. we could sleep in the same, in the same, you know, same uh, tents every night and not be worried about it and get to the point, even with, with how you are with other Marines, where you trust them in, in a battle space and in, in, in a firefight. And, you know, I remember the, the first firefight we got into, the guys just took off. Like they just, I remember like, okay, just like any other infantry units, you know, you, you, you turn to fire and you start moving, you know, you know, moving through it. And I remember, you know, transitioning and taking a position and started like, okay, but well now we're going to start, you know, addressing the fire issue. And all of a sudden I turn around the two guys that I had with me had taken off through the desert. And then it got to the point where then, you know, about the end of the point we were, you know, they trusted us that, Hey, we're not going to, we're not trying to get you killed. We're just trying to, we're trying to make you guys successful. And so I, I think that was, that you know, because I was young, that when I was only 22, I think. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I seen that as as like, hey, this is the fundamentals of how you build build trust and a working, make it a working relationship where it's mutually beneficial to to both sides. Um, so I, I think that's always something that kind of stuck with me that it's you never know what someone's influences are on the on the decisions and type of things they make until you know you you really get to know them and then you can start figuring things out you know i i like the biggest thing you know it's like we didn't we thought they're just lazy well no they're not lazy it's they're threatened to be here by the afghan military if they go home then they're threatened with court martial their version of court martial but they're also being threatened from the taliban saying stop working with the government and the americans or we're going to kill your family Mm -hmm. And you realize like, okay, this is a whole different, you know, this is a whole different mindset than any American would ever imagine. Like, like, and we try to put in context, like, what if I was threatened? One, obviously I can't leave the Marine Corps, but what if someone was back in the United States saying, if your son keeps working with the Marine Corps, we're going to kill your family. And then thinking like, I'm going to do my job on any functional level, it, you know? So it's, it's these just open my mind to that, that my viewpoint is not the only one there. And then once you start realizing, you start seeing like, hey, you know, their culture is different. And how do I tailor myself to fit? You know, how do I 
how do I tailor my, my behaviors, my actions towards them to fit within their cultural context? And, and, you know, you realize like, hey, this is not just, we're not just trying to fight terrorism. It matters so much more. And you talk to these guys and, and their, their factors, what got them to the point where they are, are so much different than mine. You know, I was white middle-class kid who had the choice to go into the military. These guys have no other choice but to do the military. This is the only thing that's going to pay them. It's the only thing that's going to get them. And even that, they don't want to, they don't necessarily want to do it. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I think overall, that was the, the impression that, that I took away, you know, it's just this opened up my worldview uh, infinitely yeah. more and, and got myself out of that, you know, kind of just the, again, white middle-class mindset on how the world works. I'm sure you followed the situation in, uh, in Afghanistan pretty closely and having, having experience training the folks um, to ultimately take over their own security when it, when it ultimately went the way that it went. I mean, did you see that as an inevitable factor or did you see that as just a, a big disappointment? Both, you know, cause I, I remember, I, I, I mean, I have to say that how that unfolded, I mean, it just felt like it just, you know, we had a certain degree of pride that what yeah. we, what, and what we did while we were over there. And it felt like it just took all, you know, the, the collapse of the country that quickly just felt like it took all the air out of all the work, sacrifice, everything is, and our, yeah, on the military side a little bit, but obviously the guys we worked with, I mean, the, the casualty rate between the U.S. military and the Afghan fighting forces is just not proportional at all. I mean, they right. lost significantly more people on, on a much higher rate than we did. But, you know, the it, it felt, I think while we were over there, we kind of realized, like, you know, how much is this really going to stick? And I remember when, when we did our uh, relief in place, the pit team that should have replaced us never came out. And so we got on the helicopter to head back and we say goodbye. And we didn't know if anyone else was going to be there oh, wow. to take care of them. And, and so like, that was, that was already like a little disheartening and, and seeing how the, no, so no, it, it's not a surprise, but it's still, I mean, I don't know what to say, but it broke my heart watching that happen as quickly as it happened. But I can't say that I was surprised that it did. You know, I just wish that yeah. it, it you, you just don't like, it just felt like a, a portion of that time didn't matter. And I think that was the hardest, that was the hardest part. And, and again, it was, I, you know, I had huge concern about, you know, are my, are my translators okay? Are they, you know, what happened to anyone in that police force? Are they, did they get, you know, you know, did they, are they able to hide? Do they escape? You know, what happened to them? And there, you know, there's a, that's a lot of guilt that, that I have. Cause like, Hey, I'm, I'm fine. I'm safe now, but you know, where, where are they, what are they doing? So yeah, that was, it, it was, it was very heartbreaking to watch that. I yeah. want to step forward, Will, into uh, into kind of post-military service and um, and what you're doing now with Seaboard Foods, but maybe talk us through the return from Afghanistan there, mm -hmm. uh, from that deployment and and the transition uh, post-military service career. I was I was set to um, end my active service in June of 2010, so I got back from Afghanistan in November of 2009. So I had know six seven months to kind of get myself in order and um immediately when we got back we started we started working as trainers and observers and controllers again and so i had kind of a little bit of time to start figuring myself out and in 2000 um because january 2010 or 2009 I, I forget whenever i was available to re-enlist that was a it was a honest like i was going to look at it and it was hey, do i go um 
you know, do the, I feel like the MESEP, the, the get out yeah. of active enlistment service, go to college, get right. a commission, come back yep. in. Um, I know that I, all the, I had the two commanding officers that I had were both had gone through that program. So, you know, I was kind of like, Hey, should I get that in line? Cause you know, I, I saw if it was going to be a career, I needed to, to go the officer route. If I thought there's going to be a longevity to my career. Um, but you know, that didn't kind of work out. And I, and I was like, well, maybe just reenlistment, but that was the year they cut reenlistment bonuses. I think for, for my specific MOS the year before, um, I could reenlist. I think it, it was like $55,000 was the bonus. And then mm. when I could reenlist, it got cut down to like four grand. And it's like, okay, well, obviously you don't yeah. want me. And then it was like, do I move to another MOS and start all over again and do all this other stuff? Um, but push came to shove, kind of like my team had been together for five years. We'd stayed in the same group. And so we, we just, I think we all looked at each other and were like, we're, we're, we're not going to get this anywhere else. You know, if we reenlist, lat move, do anything like that, we're going to be sent back out and we're going to lose this kind of unique, this unique thing that we had. So, you know, I, out of the, really the core seven of us, five of us got out, two wow. went on. And I think one still, you know, still in the, and I think he's, you know, he's a couple of years away from retirement. So, you know, he, the, I think everyone just kind of saw the right on the wall that this is the best thing. So um, I started looking at schools and I, I thought my first instinct was just to return back to Colorado. Um, I looked at some SEC schools because I had a buddy that was from Alabama and he took me down to the Iron Bowl. And yeah. it's like, yeah, okay. So yeah. this is something I've never had and this is great. So I, you know, I, I was just kind of looking at schools and, um, you know, my, you know, my, again, I kind of had the same problem that I had in high school. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And so my, the first thing that popped in my head was like, okay, well, I'll just do, I'll do a business degree. And I remember I was talking to a, a buddy of mine and he, you know, I was like, he had done school. And, and so he had his degree. And so I was just kind of, Hey man, what do you think about this? And uh, he, he's from a, uh, uh, a cattle finishing farm out in Virginia. So he's, mm-hmm. he's, and he got his degree in agriculture business. And so mm-hmm. he goes, you know, he goes, you know, maybe you want to look at this, like you get your business, but you also get ag, you get something like industry specific behind it. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right, that's, that's pretty interesting. You know, I'll take a look, I'll take a look at that. Um, so I started looking back at Colorado schools and I grew up a, a university of Colorado fan. I mean, right outside of Boulder, I, I worked when I was in high school, I worked um, in the stadium for games. So I remember sitting there being able to watch, you know, so I grew yeah, up a yeah. big CU fan. Um, which is because like all my, if you look at like deployment pictures, like the room, I had a bunch of like CU flags and, and like the, all this stuff. So I called CU and I said, Hey, I'm a, I'm a, you know, military personnel about to get out. How do I apply? What does it look like? And I remember the lady on the phone was very direct and she said, like everybody else. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> sure. I'll figure that out. Yeah. And, um, I had just reconnected with my now wife, but she was my girlfriend at the time and she was up in Fort Collins and she's like, Hey, why don't you take a look at CSU? And my first thought, like, no, I don't, don't want to be at CSU. Like that's, that's not the school, but I called them and I said, Hey, I'm in the military looking to get out. What should I do? And she goes, Oh, you're in the military. Okay. Hold on one second. Send me to, um, to the veteran center there on the CSU campus. And it was another vet that picked up the phone and he's like, Hey, yeah, okay, great. Here's what you need. What's your email. Let me send you this packet, do this, fill this out, do this. And it was like this, just here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's how you get the VA benefits started. Here's how you get applied to the school. Here's all the wickets you hit. Start doing these things and get yourself applied to it. And I, I remember I was, 
I was out in the field on uh, doing a training exercise and I just happened to get enough self-service for an email and it popped up and it basically, I remember I was, I was, I was given a class on a 50 cal and I remember specifically, I got this, this ding cause we shouldn't have self-service out there. And somehow mm-hmm. I got service for a minute long enough to get this email. And it said, basically I got accepted into Carl state university. That's awesome. And I remember sitting there thinking like, this is the weird. And I remember telling everyone I was super excited. And it's like, I got it. Like I have, I know what I want to do. And, um, once, once I get in there, I started looking at the programs. I was like, okay, look at the business school, look at different things. And I remember seeing right there, they have, you know, agriculture business as a program. And so I was like, well, okay, this is it. And so I, I talked to my buddy again. He goes, yeah, man, that's, that, that's, what's going to look like. That's your path. Like, I, I think you need to go after that. So, you know, I, I applied and that's the, the program that I got into. And again, I, I have zero ag background of when I grew up. I, city never really around animals never had that kind of thing but it was it i I think what when i got into the program and started getting through it i I think what i love most about it is one all like just having other kids from the agriculture background so it's i i like i i very much associate myself or i feel most comfortable around blue collar hand work you know being able to to work that so having those other individuals that come from that background because i think it's like me and another, and, and I remember there was another vet that was in the program with me through the whole time. And him and I were the only ones that weren't like from, you know, rural ports of the United States that basically they came from a family farm. They were just here to get an education and go back and run their farm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was just interesting, like talking with, again, just a different group of people that I've never really had much association with and just talking through everything with them. And, um, but going through the program, it's like, again, it it was, I had the business principles and, and that side, but it was also very much geared towards agriculture and its industry. And the way that CSU kind of worked is that you could either go like the grain crop route mm-hmm. or you could do the meat route. And so I, I took like the meat science classes and started doing that. So that, again, that was like, Hey, you get your hands on stuff. You get to see how it's, a you know, you, there's something specific applicable to what you're doing. Um, so I, I liked that a lot it was, you know, it, it was, and all the instructors too are all ag guys. So they're all very, you know, it's that same, it's what, I, you know, what, what I love most about working with, with people who are in agriculture, it's just the no nonsense mm-hmm. salt of the earth. They'll tell you exactly what they're thinking. And, you know, and it's just a very practical type of mindset that is just, it's very, I love learning from it. And it's just a good, you know, it's a good group of people. And did it's ever, a small, it, sorry. Did you ever feel as, as you were starting to kind of get this connection to agriculture through the work you had done when you were growing up and this sort of hands-on thing, did you ever think back to your military service and say the same salt of the earth people that I'm experiencing now in ag and the same no nonsense, the same thing that I experienced from the Marine Corps and, and was there ever, if that was the case, was there ever this like longing for part of what you missed in the Marine Corps that you were now able to find again and coalesce in, in ag? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I was going to say, it, it's a very, it was a very small, tight-knit group of people. I mean, the, the, we're in the, the meats industry. They yeah. were there for very specific reasons. Like, again, they're there for farming. But so it's like, you realize they're very close-knit and, you know, it, it's, it's one of those that it, it very much felt comfortable to me to have the same group of people in every class that I had that I knew. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, like everyone kind of went through the program together. And so it wasn't, 
you know, my class sizes were, were 20 people just because it was a very specific degree program. And, and you know, so that, that had that same kind of esprit de corps or that camaraderie that everyone kind of enjoys about the military. It's the same thing where the same guys that I was doing classes with, I could go, we would go grab beers, go watch the football games, go do all the stuff with them. So I, I think it was good for me. One, it didn't make me, it didn't make me feel like I was that, I, I forget to, to, you know, it always felt like the, uh, the best analogy is like Billy Madison, right? Where you're this grown adult and in a classroom of kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Felt like out of place, but they, there was never that feeling with them. And it was all, they always had that same kind of mentality. You know, all the kids in the program had the same mentality where it's like, I'm here for a specific purpose. And I, that's how I viewed my school. It wasn't like, I'm not here for a life experience. At school, right? I'm, I, I've already had that life experience that I needed to get myself motivated for school. I don't need to figure out who I am or what what I'm want to do with myself. Now I know, and everyone else in that program was the exact same way. It's like, mm. I don't want to be at school, but I have to because it matters for these certain things. And since they had that same mentality, it just, and same with the military, it was just no nonsense. Like we're here to do something. We're here to do work, and this is why we're going to do the work. And so we're going to do it and do and get it done. And, you know, I think that that's what I kind of cling to pretty quick. Yeah. And, and then it just, you know, it, it, it was a, it was a natural fit, a natural progression. And, and I, I think it, it helped me get through the program successfully, you know, because I was able to, um, to stay focused on, on the kind of the school portion of things. Give me a sense, Will, of, of how you got into Seaboard and, and what your current role with them is. Yeah, so um, I first was introduced uh, to Seaboard by a recruiter that just came into my meat science class, and they're okay. looking with what they called like a, a winternship, and it was it was a two or three week uh, between semester winternship where they would just take you down um, to Guyman, Oklahoma, which is where the processing facility is, uh, and they have a lot of they have they have all, all the south sites, live barns finishing sites, the feed mill. So it was basically like, hey, we're just going to throw you in. We're going to take you to every aspect of the business mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of just get you through that. So that was my first introduction. I did that between my junior, during my junior year. So went down for a guy for a couple weeks, got inter- introduced with the company. Um, but I, through all of it, I, I and, and a lot of this comes back from my military training is I wanted to work with people. And so I was kind of geared towards the sales side. And at the time, Seaboard did not have like a, a sales internship, you know, the company relatively was relatively new within the meat industry. You know, it, I think at that time they had, they had been around for about 15 or 16 years as a sales. Mm-hmm. So all the people that, that started with the company were generally, especially in the sales area were generally still there. So it wasn't, they didn't have this need for, you know, college recruiting or turnover. You didn't have a whole lot of turnover. So there, there wasn't a, a need for a sales internship program. Um, they were doing management trainees, but that was for, post-graduation and, and getting into the program. So um, I just mentioned that to, you know, to the recruiters, like, Hey, I, I really love it, but I don't see myself moving down to Guyman, Oklahoma and working in a plant. Like I, it's fine, but it's not for me. Yeah. Um, so you know, in the meantime, I was, I, you know, JBS is very close to mm-hmm. Fort Collins and has a big relationship with them. So I was looking at internship through JBS and kind of doing the same thing um, with them. And, and obviously just looking at other, at, at other, specifically meats, meat, uh, protein kind of jobs. So went through that. Well, it's come to find out that you know, they said, Hey, we want to, we want to bring you out for another, for, a, for an internship for, for the summer. 
so why don't you come out and interview? So I interviewed with them. They loved me, brought me out for the summer um, between my junior and senior year. And I was their first sales intern that they had. Mm. Um, so did that, had a, had a great time. And it was very loosely structured. Again, they didn't really know what to do with me. So I kind of had to make work for myself. And mm. it was it was, it was fine for me because, it, again, it was just kind of intuitive for me to, you know, if I didn't have something to do, go find something to do. Um, and, you know, so it was a good little introduction to, to the company, how they work. Um, and, you know, I, I had a little bit of the basis with seeing the live side operations and things like that to kind of put some stuff into context. So that helped me out. Um, and then just, uh, you know, I, I have my, my father-in-law at the time um, had uh, connections within the protein industry. He, he, the company he worked for uh, sold all the boxes for the box meat. So he had connections all over the industry and another company national beef was, is here in Kansas city. Um, so I ended up actually interviewing with them on my way back to Colorado to finish school. Um, so I ended up getting a job offer from them and from at seaboard, uh, as well. So, um, I opted to go with, with national beef. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, to me it was, there's a little bit of pressure from my father-in-law was a one yeah. that kind of endured me into the company. And yeah. it, to be honest, it was more money at the time from, for a college kid starting. So, that's just, that's what I, what I, what I kind of clung to. So, um, I started with them, uh, in, uh, 2013, we moved out to Kansas city and it, it was just, it was a really bad time. You know, the cattle industry was down, it was really rough. Yeah. You know, we, we had, it was very, very difficult to sell into and the company itself had been sold to like an investment firm, kind of like a, um, like a Berkshire Hathaway sort of yep. like just a holding firm. So the, they didn't understand the cyclical nature of, of the cattle industry. So there was a lot of pressure, like we bought this company and now it's just losing money. What do we, you know, so it was, it was a tough time. And I, for my first job, I just, it wasn't, it wasn't doing well. Um, and I happened to run into um, a couple executives from Seaboard at a Royals game. And they just said, Hey, you want a job? Sure. Let's go. <laughs> so I, I ended up just leaving national beef and starting back at, at Seaboard um, kind of exact same position, but it just, it, the minute that I got back in the seaboard, it was just that, that it, it was the, it was the same feeling. And I, I think it's, it's one of those that, that matters to me within a career. It's the difference between like national beef kind of had this feeling like, like I need to deserve to be there versus mm-hmm. seaboard saying like, we want you here. Mm-hmm. And so I think that w- being wanted or, or, or saying like, Hey, we have a place for you. Um, that made it much more comfortable and made it easier to go into work every day. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, um, went through the, you know, kind of the, the, there, since I already had some experience, it wasn't like a new training process for me, but, um, starting with the the seaboard sales guys, but I I started with the retail side. Um, I worked there, worked with them for about three months. And then I ended up being moved over to, um, selling bone-in hams and with Mm -hmm. the, the hog carcass that is the largest volume item just due to weight. And it's just a, you know, it's roughly you're selling majority of it down into Mexico. And Mm. so that that's kind of where I first started to kind of get my, my feet wet with the export side of things. Um, Probably about a year out because currently the bone and hams were were grouped under the processor sales group. So that was all domestic processors. And then I was kind of selling a lot of it to export and they kind of, they decided to restructure it and put bone and hams 
the category underneath um, the export sales team. And it, it is natural because again, you're 90% of your volume is going that way anyway. So it made sense to kind of to fall under that purview. So um, that's, I did that for about another year or so. And then um, again, we had another shuffle and restructuring and they offered me the position of, of taking over uh, the Japanese desk. And so for mm -hmm. the Eastern hemisphere, each major market for us, so China, Japan, uh, Korea, and then the underneath Korea, all the Southeast Asian countries are run by individual salespeople. So they have control over that, mm -hmm. that country. Um, so for me, it was taking over the Japanese business, which was just night and day different from selling bone and hams where you're talking, you know, millions of pounds of volume and small margins to now you're talking a, you're selling middle meats and high end product at high, you know, high margins and it's still pretty decent volume too. So, um, you know, I've been doing that. Uh, it'll be five years here in a couple of months that I've had the, the, the Japanese desk. And so from, from my perspective, it, you know, I, I've, I think it's probably taken me about two and a half to three years to, yeah. to learn the industry. And now it's, it's, it's kind of the, the, we're feeling comfortable, but what's how, you know, how Seaboard treats the, the export business, especially Japan, you know, it's a value added, it's kind of treated like a value added business. That's such a unique market. And it's really interesting to hear you say that Seaboard separates out China, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia. I mean, what, what is, what is unique or what are some of those nuances specific to the Japanese market that would, that maybe a lot of our listeners would know about, or that would necessitate having to break these out into different categories? Yeah. You know, I, I think, the, I think the reason that we did it is, um, is one that you have to have your, it takes one individual person not to, you know, to, to separate it out, yeah. but because it's so encompassing and there's so much to it from from start to finish with the program, they they want you to be a, a specialist, and we are a specialist within our within our group. The Japanese market is obviously very very interesting because they are technically a food insecure nation, so they have to import food mm. to keep it going. And you know we've had we've had um, you know so there's there's the necessity to have imported pork come in, and pork being one of their you know uh, one of their highest consume proteins it's a necessity so it, it's it's there but you know it's it's how do we create value within the japanese market and how a japanese consumer looks at pork versus a u.s consumer is completely different so for us it's it, you know one of the biggest nuances is is quality and accountability and you know not every u.s consumer of, especially of pork knows like hey where does it always come from and I know, I know everyone in the meat industry does the same thing. When, like when you go to a nice steakhouse or a nice restaurant and you love that cut of steak or pork, you know, hey, where's it from? And the poor waiter will say, well, I don't know, U.S. Foods or Cisco. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. they don't know. So, yeah. you know, but the Japanese consumer wants to know exactly where it came from. You know, they want a face. They want a farm. They want a story. They want something that they can relate to say, hey, this is better because of these reasons. So, you know, it's, it's, taking that mindset and trying to fit it within the context of what's operationally feasible for us as a U.S. processor. You know, how much of this stuff can we actually accommodate? And if we can't, what else can we do to try to, to help tell our story into the Japanese market? You mentioned some supply chain disruptions due to COVID. Were, were you guys impacted mid-2020 by some of the same plant closures that JBS and others were? And if so, how yeah, did you guys we, work through that? Yeah, you know, it got... It, it got um, I think of Mar. I think it was May. We mm -hmm. that was probably when it when it hit us. Um, 
And it was basically, you know, we're just trying to, you know, cause I, I think roughly you can say you can get through a, a roughly three to four days of, of a plant closure without having to coal any of the herd um, that, you know, cause there you have that, you have that backup of, of hogs in the system. So I think that's, we're able to mitigate that. So there was a couple of days of plant closures until they could figure it out. And there's some real, you know, there's times where we just had to run, Hey, you're just going to get base product. You know, you're not going to get this further converted item. You're going to get mm. base products with the people that we have in there. It's still a, a degree, you know, we just like everyone in the industry is just struggling to get, you know, to get the, the labor in there to run at full capacity. So um, yeah, we definitely had to adjust our, our operating mentality to, to fit the, the current situation with labor. And, and again, trying to keep, you know, get people in the plant to feel safe and, and, yeah. and trying to do those things that continue running on a, on a functional level. So yeah, there, there was, there was a couple days we were, I think we're fairly fortunate that we didn't have, um, you know, to, to call any parts of our, of our herd because of it, but yeah, there was definitely, um, you know, some just trying to keep the lights on situation for us, for sure. I mean, how, how much of those practices did you, that you had to implement as a result of that have continued forward now that, you know, in some instances, you're able to operate at full capacity? Yeah, you, you know, I think now it, the mentality that, that I've taken, and, and I think as, as, as a company, is that it, everything that we have to, anything that we do, anything we sell has to be operationally feasible for our current situation. So it's changed this mentality, you know, maybe three, four or five years ago, we could say, hey, make this for us. And it wasn't like, a, can you make it? Now it's a, what what can you do? Okay, mm. now how do we sell to that? You know, and, and I think that's, that for us, everything has to be operationally sustainable for us. It, it just has to be. It, it has to be feasible at a plant level. Otherwise, it's, it's just we're, we're over-promising and under-delivering. Yeah. And I think that's changing the, the mentality with our customers a little bit and trying to say, hey, this may not be the mix, but this is the mix that we need to we need to move to to continue to supply you the way you want to be supplied. You know, and not may not be what you wanted in the past or or what you what you've desired or your best case scenario, but this is what we can functionally do. You know, as a company, so I think that's it's changed the mentality at least from from in my position. But I think most of the uh, you know the rest of the sales team is kind of doing that. It's it's figuring out what's functionally the, the, you know, possible to do. And then obviously just making the best decision for us as a company overall, you know, it's very unique, you know, because we can, we can take a, you know, because we own the entire chain, you could take a loss in one of the business sectors. If you think that another sector could pick that up and make an incremental profit, right? Mm -hmm. So your, mm -hmm. your, your business decisions, and this is that obviously on the executive level are very dynamic because you're not just thinking about what's best for the plant or what's best for the live side, you know, because if you thought about just those things that would change your overall business decisions, but looking at the entire picture and saying, you know, what is the best decision for the, for the company that, you know, that changes kind of how we do things. And I think that's starting to trickle down to, to us talking directly with customers and saying, this is not the best option for us as a company. And this is not the way that, that we're going to be able to continue business. We have to change a little bit. So I think that's, that, that's been kind of the struggle that we've, we've gone through the last, you know, year and a half, two years now. How much of a, of a role do you think technology at the plant capacity can play in picking up some of the shortcomings, shortcomings of a, of a labor shortage? Is there, are there things you're considering with automation? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some stuff that even before this happened, there was always the discussion about automation, right? And if it's, if it's, functionally able to do at a plant level, 
and this is again this is before we had any labor concerns you know it's like hey if we can incrementally increase throughput increase volume better yields things like that like that's obviously something you want to look at i think now because of this labor situation it's getting a little bit more mm -hmm. um steam because it's now that hey automation would be a good way to address this but the, the, the overall problem with automation with the with the protein industry is that it's not the same input on every single thing, right? The hogs vary in size one way or the other. The anatomy might be a little bit different. So it's trying to, you know, the, trying to find the technology that can, that can address the variation within production. Um, and, you know, so I, but I know we, we have to look at it. We have to try to make it as, as, we try to make ourselves as advanced as possible if we want to stay viable within the industry, for sure. What what can you, because your point about anatomical differences of each of the input products is, is a really good one. What can you automate right now in the, in the processing process that doesn't necessarily uh, need to account for different anatomical inputs? So, so I, I think probably the, the, the biggest thing would be the initial um, like carcass breaks, right? As you're breaking down a carcass, making those primals and then yeah. even maybe just in the subprimals, those are probably the biggest opportunities for us because those are generally, you know, it's high skilled labor or, you know, it's a, it's a hard job to do. Uh, but that would probably be the, the first step is trying to get the product to the line worker where they have to touch it the least amount to get it to where they need uh -huh. to be. So it's, it's, I think those big cuts, big items. Um, there's also a lot on the packaging side. Um, to try to alleviate some of the labor that we're seeing there, you know, whether it's automatic baggers or um, increasing the automation on the box side of things to be able to put things. So just mm. once it gets into a bag, once the product gets into a bag, it just gets touched by less people, you know? So I know there's a, there's a lot of working on, on trying to do that. Cause you're just looking at where does it, where does the, where does the labor get sucked up the most? And for us, we see a lot of it on the packaging side, you know, once it, mm. once it probably gets trimmed down, it's getting it through the cryovac or, or whatever else is doing, getting into a box, getting into the freezer or the cooler, and then getting it out on the road. So I, I think those those would probably be the, the automation that's, in my opinion, is probably the yeah, yeah. most viable, quickest is the stuff that helped alleviate some of those backlogs um, within the operation flow. I really appreciate you sharing all of this unique perspective. A lot of what you've talked about today is just, there are nuances there that, um, with a company at your skies and scale that, you know, I just really wasn't aware of. And so I appreciate your time. I appreciate you, obviously your service and, um, and for sharing these insights with us. I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, maybe one last quick question. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've kind of talked about lots of different things here and I wanted to, to finish with an opportunity to ask you if there's anything that we haven't talked about that in your opinion, we, we should address. Um, you know, you know, I think kind of just to summarize the thing, I, I think the only thing that that is is been beneficial to me and kind of harkens back to my understanding, my time in, in Afghanistan specifically, and realizing that worldviews are so varied and so different, mm -hmm. and people's perspectives are so varied and different. But it's something that I've taken into this agriculture business and industry is realizing the, the you know, the influences on buying from in the Japanese market versus Chinese market versus Mexico versus Central South America, everyone's influences are different. And, you know, the, the business culture behind it too is, is varied. I mean, there's you, the type of business that you, and how you manage a business from Japan versus East coast buyers uh, there in like 
you know, New York and, and those areas versus California buyers versus buyers in Mexico. Like everyone's got their viewpoint. And so I, I think what's lended to me is understanding that to first be successful in whatever marketplace I'm selling into, I have to understand their influences and, and what they're doing with it. And I think, you know, overall that, that is probably the biggest takeaway I've had from the military is saying it, my view is not the only one. What, what does everyone else have? What, how does everyone else see things? And that would be, that's the first step I have to becoming successful. And you can small scale to just individual people that I work with and, and realizing that, that my job, obviously working from home is a lot easier than the, the people who are going into a plant and working eight hours a day on the line. And I have to be just as conscious of, of their influences and what gets them to do. Because if I ask them to do something, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm asking something that they want to do, can do, are willing to do, and it's sustainable and they understand why I'm asking it. And, you know, so I, I think it's just understanding that, you know, and you know this better than I, but anyone in the agriculture business is not one dimensional. And I think anyone that's not yeah. in the industry sees it as just agriculture to agriculture. And it's just, it's just food that shows up at a restaurant or inside of a, a supermarket and that's it. And they don't realize how much more dynamic and how, you know, vary the agriculture industry is and people who play in it. So it's, I think that's the, the biggest takeaway I found is kind of the, how humbling it can be to kind of work with these different industries. During his time in Afghanistan in particular, Will described the process through which he was able to build trust with the Afghans he was working with and go essentially from pointing guns at each other to a realization of the difference in each other's circumstances and how that played a major factor in their actions and in their daily lives. It's a skill that he's brought forward with him into his everyday interactions with his Japanese clients today. Will talks about the realities of the current labor shortages within the U.S. protein sector. Several years ago, the approach was, make this for us, based on what the market is demanding. But today's situation dictates a different approach. What can the plant supply, given available labor, and then how do we sell that in an operationally and sustainable way? Seaboard is in a very interesting place within the sector due to their vertical integration. They can take a loss in one area if they're confident they can make it up in another. Now we recognize that not everyone within the meat industry or other industries can do this, but it does raise the point of how important it is in today's labor constrained environments to have as much direct control over your own supply chain as possible. Finally, the role that technology can and should play within the meat industry is still in some ways limited by the technology and its uh, ability to account for in this case, anatomical variations in the input material. Initial carcass breaks and separations into primals and subprimals is certainly possible, as well as some efficiencies within packaging. But further refinement into higher value cuts still requires skilled labor. It's certainly an area we plan to watch in the coming months and years. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, 
please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and until next time, stay frosty.